0: evening, Hope Church. Open up to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to continue going. Last week, uh, we started there and we, we only took the first uh, couple of verses. And what we said for ourselves was a bit of a theme for the whole book going forward, that it is, it is all about Jesus. It is all about the church. It is all about God getting glory in Jesus through the church forever and ever. Amen. And what we found uh, is that uh, uh, as we're going to look into this passage, what we'll find is that from verse 3 of chapter 1, until verse 10 of chapter 2, basically you've got uh, him praising God and then uh, he goes in verse 15 onwards to him praying to God Uh, and both of them are all about the gospel and the work of the gospel and the work of Jesus but these first uh, verses that will be in tonight, verse 3 until verse 14, uh, are all about praising or what we call the technical term doxology. He is giving a a word of praise, a worshipful uh, 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 paragraph towards God for His grace in the gospel. We are going to do this in two parts. We're going to do 3 till 14 this week and look at the fact and the elements of what we will call a Trinitarian salvation. The salvation that we've been brought into by faith in Christ is not just a salvation wrought by the second person of the Trinity alone, Jesus, but is rather the working together of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we'll be looking at that tonight, the triune salvation in the gospel. But next week, we'll be looking at more specifically our union with Jesus Christ, uh, what theologians call the mystical union of the believer and Jesus Christ. And so we'll be pulling that apart next week from the same, same same passage, but just from a slightly different angle with a focus on Jesus and the benefits we receive by our union with him. I don't know if you've ever looked at any uh, drone footage. Uh, it was uh, amazing to be in uh, South Asia on our recent mission trip and be able to walk in what feels like a slum with all sorts of Unnamed body fluids sort of splashing at your ankles and, and uh stepping over dead cats and mongrel dogs in order to get to where we're going. But but, but once we got there, have our missionary sit down and show us that, that on the iPad he was taking a drone footage while we were walking. Now for us it was filthy, it was disgusting, it was dirty, it was third world. But you look at the drone footage and you'd think you're in paradise. Eden was never sweep swept off the face of the earth. You look at the you look at the drone and you just have an entirely different perspective. It's beautiful. It's you can see the horizons, you can see the The great landmarks of the mountains and the rivers and the valleys and the canyons and the trees and all of that. And Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 14, is going to be for us like a drone footage over the the glorious gospel and all of redemptive history from eternity past to eternity future. That's what it's going to be like. And just as a, a drone going over a mountain and doing amazing, amazing footage might start at the top of the mountain, dropping down out of the clouds, and seeing the, the well spring or the, the fountain head of a river, and then following that river as it courses through the land and down beautiful riverbeds and through gorges and gullies and valleys and mountains, and then leads eventually to what might be a beautiful waterfall that cascades into the into the ocean. That's kind of what our passage is is going to be like tonight. We're going to start at looking, in Paul's words, at the glorious fountainhead of all salvation that is God the Father. And we're going to see how God's grace has run down to us through the river that is the glorious Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then we're going to end, uh, tonight and next week, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at how it then cascades or ends in the way that it pours out into eternity, into the ocean through the application of Jesus' work by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the, that's kind of the big view that we're taking tonight. So can you look with me at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That will be our theme for the whole night. A word of praise to God the Father for his salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. May God bless the reading of His own inerrant glorious word in our midst this evening. Amen. Amen. Look at the first few words of the first verse we're considering tonight, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. Then he will talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and towards the end, verse 13, 14, of the Holy Spirit. I know this will be very simple 101 for many of us, but let us make sure we're all up to speed since what goes assumed is what usually goes ignored. Let's bring it back into our focus tonight of the doctrine of the Trinity. When we speak of the Christian God, and only the Christian God is thought of in these ways, and, and only the Christian God is the true living God, just by the way, but only the Christian God is conceived of in these terms of what we call the Trinity. Uh, ba- those words uh, basically explain the doctrine in whole. Tri is the, is the prefix meaning three, and uni is the suffix meaning one. So when we say triune, we're literally just saying one. Or three in one, or one in three, the triune God, the God who is Trinity. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that Paul uh, uh, glorifies and blesses for the blessings of the gospel. We ought to understand this matter of the Trinity, it is something that we as Christians, every Bible believing, every evangelical, every Reformed Baptist, every faith in Christ Christian should have a working knowledge of the Trinity. It's not just for scholarly, academic, theological types out there, as we will see tonight. It is the, it is the, the tracks that the, the, the gospel runs along it's this is a healthy understanding of the Trinity. You need to have one. Although we should understand it, we cannot exhaustively comprehend it and we should not expect to. Pardon me before I throw this into the depths of hell. That rattle was going to annoy me. Though we ought to understand the Trinity and the, and the basic truths that it presents to us, we cannot understand it exhaustively. We cannot comprehend a, a word that really means to wrap up and pick up all the last straws of information about God's essential being and say, there we are, I've understood it. And we never can and we never should expect to. But though we cannot know God exhaustively, we must know God truly. We are not left alone to a a black room of ignorance and guesswork when it comes to God's essential being. We are rather told through the words of Scripture how we ought to think about him. This is how the Athanasian Creed puts our belief in the Trinity since some of the earliest centuries of the church. It says this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither blending the persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. This is what we mean by the Trinity. We believe in one God who has always eternally existed in three persons. Here's here's seven simple statements that if you can profess these and understand these, you've got a running, working, biblical understanding of the Trinity. Statement number one is this. God is one. There is only one true living and eternal existent being that is God. There's only one that only ever has been one, that only ever will be one. That's what it means to be God. The Bible presents to us that there is one God and his name is Yahweh. The Bible also presents to us the fact that the Father is to be called Yahweh, the Son is to be thought of as Yahweh, and the Spirit is rightly named Yahweh. However, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. That's seven very simple statements. So when you understand that, you can summarize what the Bible speaks to us about the, the relationship between God's triunity and his oneness. There is one God. He is Yahweh. The Father is Yahweh. The Son is Yahweh. The Spirit is Yahweh. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Those very simple statements is what we mean. Or in other words, God... When we speak of his essence, his, his being, or another technical word, his substance, that is the what he is, there is only one God. He is one in essence, one in being, one in substance. Those are all very technical terms that were handed down through us to us through the Greek and Latin fathers. However, so when you ask of what God is, the whatness of God, there is only one being. When we start speaking of the who of God, or the personas in God, or the persons, another technical word might be the subsistences, he subsists in three persons within the one essential being of God. I hope I have lost none of you. I trust that you're all up to date. You know the Latin, you'll remember the Greek, and you're all just rattling off the triune creeds in your head as we speak, no doubt. This is what we call the ontological trinity. That is the being of God in His essence, in His in His uh, His very natural being. Now, here's the errors we can get into. One of them very obvious; the other two a little bit more subtle. One of them is tritheism. That is, there's three gods. There's only one being. However, those persons are all God. Sorry, I've just I've just. Messed it all up and made this confusing more had it not been already. Well, this 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 error number one is tritheism. There is three gods, and each of those gods have their own person. So, will they say three persons? Yes. Will they say equal beings? Maybe. But will they say three distinct beings divided in essence? Yes, they would. That's that's mono. That's tr- uh, that's tritheism. That there is three gods. We don't believe that whatsoever. The next error would be modalism. Modalism uh, still spouted today by, uh, by 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 different people groups and uh, I, I, I mean religious groups, uh, uh, namely and probably most popularly the uh, the oneness Pentecostals. That is, to, not all Pentecostals don't hear the same thing. Oneness Pentecostals because they have a oneness view of God. And in modalism, it teaches that there is only one God, but rather than having three distinct persons, God just has three different masks. Or three different hats he chucks on. Three different lanyards or what they call three different modes. That he presented himself in the mode of the Father in the Old Testament, the mode of the Son in the Incarnation, and the mode of the Spirit in the church age, but they're all the same person, just swapping masks. They are one being, one person modalism. That's a heresy. And, and just to sort of pop the bubble of any of the parents that have tried to help their kids understand the Trinity, if you've ever, ever used the analogy of water for the Trinity, you've been making little heretics because that is modalism. We might say the Trinity is like, it's like the, the three in one, like water. You know, water can be liquid sometimes, solid other times, gas at other times. That's modalism. God's not like that. He's not sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Spirit. He is at all times, always, exhaustively, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So that's modalism. The third one is partialism. And that would be to say that that there is is one being who is God. There is three beings in that God. But each of those beings have a third of the being of the ultimate God. They're, They're all a third God. So the Father's a third God, the Son is a third God, the, son, the Spirit is a third God, but together they make up the totality or they, they exhaust the attributes of Yahweh. That also is an error and a historic heresy. Now the analogy that you parents have been using to teach your kids that one and get them burned at the stake is the egg analogy, and I, and I hope you haven't used it, where we say, well, you know, God is, he's three in one, he's like an egg. You know, the, there's the father who's the shell, there's the son who's the yoke, and they're all held together by the, by the, by the white of the spirit. Well, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the fact is that if you were to take a shell, a shell only, and go up to some hipster on a Saturday afternoon, 11, and, or, and give him his breakfast, he would sit there with his little man bun and say, Where's the egg? You can't say that, well, I've given you the egg. He would say, you've given me part of the egg. That egg is not, uh, that shell is not the egg. The essence of the shell is different from the essence of the whole egg. And, And so it is that if we have a partialistic view of God, or we're committing this heresy of partialism, then we will say, they're all a third God. But what that means is that the Father is not God. He's a third God. The Son is not fully God. He's only a third God. The Spirit is not God. It would be inappropriate to ever speak of them each as having those attributes. Rather, that would be the heresy. So we rather come back to the creed that reminds us we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons, that would be modalism, or dividing their essence, that would be tritheism. This is, as we've said, the ontological trinity. A little crash course for you in our, in our seminary studies about the, 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 the ontology, the being, the nature of God in his trinity. But we're going to start looking tonight into Ephesians, in verse 3 onwards, at the economic trinity. This is another term. This, this does not mean we're considering the other three people in the Godhead as if there were, there were six of them. Uh, we're not speaking of a different God. What we're meaning is, and neither are we going to start talking about financial matters and legal things and the economic trinity. What we mean is that this is the trinity as they reveal themselves to us in history through the word in the working of salvation. As Yahweh in three persons works out the salvation through history, he shows to us, he reveals to us that the Father has particular roles that the Son does not fulfill. And the Son has particular roles that the Spirit and the Father do not fulfill. And the Spirit has particular roles that the Father and the Son do not fulfill. They have each uh, distinct, though not separate, distinct roles that they fulfill in our salvation. The easiest example to get your minds around it is that it is wrong to say that the Father came and died for our sins. Don't jab him. Don't, annoy, don't, don't point at him, but have you ever been in the prayer meeting? Father, we thank you so much for coming and dying for our sins. Technically, that's Patripassianism, the doctrine that the Father suffered in and on the cross for the salvation. He said, no, that was actually condemned in a historic creed. We, we can't agree with that. Don't, don't do that mid-prayer meeting, okay? But it's important to get our Trinitarian, our economic trinity right when we think about salvation. Now, if you go back and read Ephesians 1 now, you will realize this is a glorious study in the economic trinity. So let's look briefly, verse 3 through 6 is mostly about the Father. This is a little bit of a, a forced division on the text. I know that we can see the work of each member of the Trinity in each, in each moment that is mentioned here, but largely the Father is discussed in verse 3 to 6 as the one who elects and predestines and plans. The Son is then spoken of in verses 7 through 12 as the one who comes and achieves and redeems and dies. And the Spirit is then spoken of in verse 13 to 14 as the one who comes and applies and and seals us and stays with us until our redemption and glorification. So Paul has these understandings of the economic trinity. And to make it just really simple for us, I have divided it in our minds into three A's. First is the appointment of the Father. Second is the achieving of the Son. And thirdly is the application by the Spirit. Don't, don't hit me up with plagiarism if you've read somebody else saying those words. There's only so many alliterations we can get away with. But here we have, first of all, the, the, the idea that the Father in salvation is the one who appoints all things. It is his decree that comes to pass in history. It's his chosen people who are saved. It's his plan of redemption that is carried out. It's him who sends the son. He's the appointer of all things. But it's then the the son who comes and embodies those things through the achieving of them, the living the perfect life, the dying on the cross, the rising from the dead. He achieves them. It's through his life, death, and resurrection. And then it's the Spirit's job to then be sent by the Father and the Son, once Jesus took his throne, to then come to the earth and apply to us the things that the Son has achieved according to what the Father had appointed. And so the Father appoints, the Son achieves, and the Spirit now comes and applies these blessings to our heart. We're going to look at the Son and the Spirit in our dealing with union with Christ next week, and tonight, in the remainder of our time together, we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive into what Paul says in this, in this uh, passage tonight. What Paul says is particularly the work of the Father in our redemption. So look at verse 3 again as we have a, I think it's our fourth time now, trying to start the exposition of this passage. And you keep on getting distracted with all these other things to cover, but I'm glad we did. Verse 3 reads like this blessed be the god and father of our lord uh, of our lord jesus christ so you need to just know from the get go this is not dry theology. This is not boring doctrine. This is not intellectual fluff. This is praise. At the end of the sermon, my my hope and prayer is that you are singing and praising and gloriously joyful in your soul, despite the situation that you're in in your life, because you have had a deeper interaction and encounter with the glory of the God of salvation. That's the aim tonight, that we would be doxologizing, that we would be praising and blessing God, beholding all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. Look, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're now going to start looking at what are the roles that the Father undertakes in order to give us these glorious spiritual blessings. <clears throat> and the first is that we're going to see that he chose. He chose who will be saved. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, in Christ before the foundation of the world. When we think of the Father... The New Testament shows to us that it is ultimately and most primarily His doing, or at least uh, 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 delegated in Scripture shown to us as being His doing, the choosing and electing those people who would be the bride of His Son. All of the people that would be saved through history, starting from Adam and Eve all the way till the last person to place their faith in Christ and be saved, every person who is saved has chosen Christ because God, before time began, first chose them. The technical word here is election. We use the language of unconditional election because it reminds to us that this is not merited. This is not deserved. You weren't chosen because you were better. In fact, you were not chosen for any condition in you whatsoever, not even being worse than the other sinners. God did not look down the corridor of time and consider... What things in you might amount to a greater heaven? He selected and elected and chose people that he had eternally loved and passed over in his election, left alone to their condemnation, those people whom he did not eternally love in his son. And you say, okay, but now the, the cart's before the horse again. This is chicken and the eggs, speaking of eggs and the Trinity, and, and uh, this is an endless cycle. Why did God love me and why did God choose me? And the answer is he chose you particularly because he loved you in his son particularly. Okay, now, now, now why did he love me particularly in his son? And the answer is very simple. It's this. It's because he had elected you to be in union with his son and beloved. See circular it starts becoming? And, and, and I have, I, have, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say that the Bible's ever bad news, but I, I don't have some pretended good news over here to say I've figured it out. Uh, I'm just telling you this is all the Bible gives to us, is the ultimate reason. Like you keep on lifting up the back curtain thinking you're getting a deeper answer, and the deepest answer that there possibly could be is the one that just keeps on coming up. He loved you. Why? Because he loved you. And he loved me. Why? Because you're in Christ. And why am I in Christ? Because he loved you. And why did he love me? Well, because you're in his Son. How can he not love you who is in his Son? Silly. This is all very simple, this eternal election matter. As glorious and mysterious as it is, we understand it to be the biblical teaching that the only people who will ever be saved, redeemed out of their misery redeemed from their deadness to sin are those who God first voluntarily chose before the foundation of the world. He did not see in us a faith. He didn't see, as I've heard some preachers say, he saw your potential and he wanted a part of it. If we still did burnings at the stake today, that's the one. He did not see in you a faith and then think, ah, yes, he'll believe, she'll believe, so I'll choose them. It's, it's not like like other preachers will try and tell you that God's elected everybody. Okay, he's, he's ticked saved on everybody's ballot, and the devil's come along, and he's ticked unsaved on everybody's ballot. But you, you have the decisive pen. You have the decisive vote which will decide whether you go to heaven or hell. God's elected you all, but you now must choose. Neither is it that. There is many different types of election in the Bible. But in this sense, what we are talking about is God choosing freely without consideration of what is in you or what is in anybody else. He is choosing freely according to his own purposes, who he will save, and only those people will be saved. Is outlined for, for us deeper in Romans 9. In verse 6, he applies by the same author, Paul. He says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion. It's not actually on your choice, which would be your human will, nor is it on the basis of your works, which would be your exertion. Not on human will, not on exertion, but on God who has mercy. He simply has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he doesn't have mercy on those whom he doesn't choose to have his mercy on, and no one can demand his mercy or his grace because it's mercy. If you're at the mercy of God, then that means you can't demand his mercy. If you're the sinner, if you're the guilty one, if you're the condemned one, if you're the creature and you're at the mercy and grace of God, it's no longer grace if you put your hand up and say, you owe it to me. If you gave it to Bob, you've got to give it to me. If you gave it to Jill, then I'm owed some too. You're no longer thinking of grace. Grace is unmerited and grace finds its election, its choice of who gets it entirely and only in the heart of God before time. If we don't like it, Romans verse 21 and 23 sort of takes us by the hand and lovingly throws us through a wall. It says this, Has the potter no right to make with, with the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The answer, of course, is yeah, of course. You're not knocking on anybody's uh, uh, ceramic store and going in and saying, I see you've got a, a knife for, 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 for spreading butter over here and you've got a toilet plunger over here. I've never seen a ceramic toilet plunger. I'm not that rich, but imagine. And so I've, this is actually a violation of, uh, of ceramics rights, did you know? If you've made both of them from the same lump, you actually have to make things of equal... No, just not dumb. A ridiculous and silly analogy that I'm going to leave there because we just don't do that. A human being has any right that they want to make out of the same clump or not whatever they desire. Well, Paul is saying, if you have that right over something that you didn't even speak into existence, you just bought at a store, if you have that right over clay, what freedom of choice must God have over his creation that rests on him for their very existence? So he goes on to say, well, what if God, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience those prepared for wrath and destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Is is this a weighty, paradoxical, mysterious, difficult doctrine? It absolutely is. Is it something that the Bible cringes at and apologizes for? It absolutely is not. It's clear. You're allowed to struggle with it. You're not allowed to call the Bible into question and say it's unclear. God says this, the problem the problem with you thinking it's unfair if you do is that you don't even understand the purpose for which God created the world. If you thought the world was here to get as many people into heaven as possible, then Yes. God freely choosing to not bring people into heaven is a conflict of interest. However, he says, if God has not created the world to save as many people as possible, though I believe the saved in in heaven will vastly outnumber those perishing in hell, Jesus will win. Even though that's the case, God didn't create the world to save as many as possible. He created the world to show off his attributes to get as much glory as possible. Paul says in Romans 9. What if he wanted to make his wrath known? What if he wanted to glorify his justice and he needed vessels prepared for condemnation in order to display it? That there would be an, an inkling or a fraction or a part of God's nature and majesty that was not put on display into eternity is the greater tragedy than souls not being in heaven. And that I say as one who believes that the greatest tragedy aside from that is that souls don't spend eternity in heaven. But God was more concerned and God is intricately concerned that his glory is put on display and therefore he chose some to to receive his grace and love and mercy and forevermore to be able to be objects of his grace, giving glory to his grace. But there was a remnant, a a leftover part, a small amount of creation that will be left in their sins in order to go to the hell that they deserve and the very hell that they chose by their own free will. That's where free will takes them. That's where God leaves them in his sovereign choice. So the first blessing, and I hope we we come back to the point that this is a blessing. This is something to rest in God for and delight in God for and praise God for. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Had he not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. I don't complain about that he chooses or who he chooses. I am marveled. I am awestruck. I am jaw to the ground, gobsmacked that he chose me. That's the doxology that should be coming from our heart at this reality. The Father... Elected, that is number one. Secondly, is that the father predestined. This is, this is not actually technically the same word as election, or the same doctrine. Uh, in election, we mean who God chose. In predestination, we're talking about where he sends those he chose. So those he chose are his elect, and he has predestined them, that is, set a destination before time for them, and we see that for us in verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God had in his election of a certain people, a, a, a majority but a portion of humanity that that would fall and that would be guilty because of their sin in Adam and their own life. He foresaw them and and considered them and foreloved them and said that I will put them into Jesus Christ. I love them in Jesus Christ and I will make them holy and blameless and they will become my children through adoption in Jesus Christ. Now this already assumes in Paul's theology and in God's pre-eternal mind This assumes alienation, defilement, and enmity. If God has to plan in time to do something to make us holy, it assumes we're not naturally holy. That the people God set his love upon are not lovely in themselves, they are defiled and unholy. If he predestines us to be blameless, it means that we were to blame prior. If he predestines to intervene and adopt us as sons, that means we weren't sons to begin with. We were rather enemies. So even at this point, as we consider his predestining, his electing purposes, we understand it's infused with grace, undeserved, unmerited grace. But where that grace in election is pointing us is towards an eternity where we will be not just in status, not just in status, which we are now, but really, in activity and everything, we will be holy, and blameless, and sin-free. What a day that will be! No fighting sin, no, no no mortifying temptation, no no trying to ignore the lusts of the world, but enjoying everything because everything that pours out of your heart is holy and blameless, God pleasing motives. That will be a great day. Now, of course, I, I think. I can't tell you what Paul was thinking outside of what he wrote, but I think that he wrote this in such an order as in, to speak of election towards blamelessness and being chosen towards holiness, I think think he's an experienced pastor. I think he knew that if he just told a bunch of guys and gals that you're chosen and God's done it all and it's irrevocable and it's unchangeable, he'll get you there because he's got chosen ones then he knows that the natural effect is to sit back on our hindquarters and chill at the back of the bus and say, look, if God's driving this thing, we'll get there. No effort from us, no no need of me to avoid my sin, we'll go there. But he's instead, he's attached it to a whole line, an entire chain. He's told us the destination for which we've been predestined. You were chosen to be holy. Does your life now look like it? You've been chosen to be blameless. Does it look like your whole life is lived in an opposite purpose for what you've been chosen? In the past, you were chosen for holiness. In the future, you're going to be perfectly holy. But this life, you think God's letting you live the way you're living? Paul's encouraging them. In your consideration of election, consider also how you ought then to live. Election is a motivation for holiness. So election, predestination, and thirdly, his plan, the Father's plan in his in role to play in the economic trinity, included centering everything on redemption through Christ. So look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Another mention of Jesus. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now we're going to look at the, 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 the Christological, the Jesus uh, points of all of these verses next week, but we're looking at the Father at the moment. We need to understand that it was the Father's idea before he created the world. His decrees all centered around his His purposes all revolved around the work of Jesus Christ in redemption. Everything in the Bible is either preaching us Jesus before he came or pointing back to Jesus after he came. Everything in all of history is revolving around the reality of redemption in Jesus Christ. Here's the the crux, which, which is just a Latin word for cross, he is the literal, or the cross is the literal crux of all of history as far as God's purposes go. He didn't plan a whole bunch of things. Jesus decide how salvation would work. He didn't write Jesus a blank check and say, I've elected people, you figure out the rest. Rather, it was the Father's delight to plan the crushing of his son. It was the Father's pleasure to plan the fulfillment of all promises in and through his son. It was the delight of the father to purpose that he would receive worship in and through his son. It was a, it was a delight of the father to plan such a thing as Ephesians will tell us, the church. where, where we don't, We're not called fatherians. We're not called patristics. We're called Christians. Those who are united to Jesus because redemption is through his blood. God the Father purposed that all things would come to a glorious salvation through the work of his Son in time. There's an old hymn that we don't sing here, but I love it. It's called At Calvary. And the final verse goes like this I promise I'm not going to sing it. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Or the song that we do sing here, a favorite of mine. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ, the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Scripture tells us that though Jesus is the Savior, the Father delighted to make him the Savior. One of the Bible's most famous verses, it was God who loved the world and sent his own Son. He is the initiator of all that we find Beautiful and good and true, in the gospel of Jesus. Fourthly, and this is our our third last one. Fourthly, uh, uh, God had a te- teleology or a telos. He had a teleological purpose. Don't no, worry, I'll explain it. I know we're doing a lot of Latin, uh, uh, big theological words tonight. But but and I'm not just missing a h as I say that theological is different from teleological. By telos, that's the, the old word that really refers to an end point or a purpose, a goal, an aim. When you ask somebody who's, who's getting up to walk and get something, what is your telos? What you're asking them is, what's the point of you doing this? What's your deal? What's the point? And what this passage shows to us is that the Father not just chose people, not just predestined an end for them, not just predestined that things would happen through Jesus, But also that all things would come to a particular moment, a head, a crux, a climax in history, or a telos. Look at verse, the end of verse 5. He talks about this salvation being according to the purpose of his will. He had a will. Look at verse 9. That he's making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Or at the end of verse 14, he talks about the inheritance being fully our possession. What we see here is that God has not so planned salvation that your salvation is the last point in the story. Your salvation, as glorious as it is, as much as angels rejoice and the Father has joy in heaven at the turning of one repentant sinner, yet that is not the end point of salvation. In other words, it's not all about you. God has an overarching plan of which you and your salvation is graciously a beautiful part. Yet, it is all about God's ultimate purpose that we read so mysteriously here in verse 9. And ten, that God has a plan to bring everything in history back together. It's the the coalescence and the, the culmination of all of his purposes. Like the river cascading over the waterfall into the ocean. It's when finally one day God is with his people face to face, having been separated since the Garden of Eden. It's when one day the physical and the spiritual are united in the deepest of ways Again, without the moral corruption of sin. It's when the, the sin is, moved, is is radically eradicated and removed from history, from the world, so that no longer is this spirit and the flesh or the good and the evil. All sin will be sent into hell and all that will be left is glorious goodness and beauty beneath God in his final stage of his kingdom. So when you look at verse 10... And it says, as a plan for the fullness of time, that was Jesus' first coming. The fullness of time was when time was up and Jesus would come and do something that would one day unite all things. But the next part of the sentence, to unite all things in him, in heaven and on earth, that's ultimately and absolutely true of his second coming, when he reunifies all that has been schism. When he brings back together all that has been divided by sin, that will be the most glorious day when, which Paul says God will be all in all. All will be in God, not ontologically. We're not essentially God, but all will be infused with God's goodness. That day, the incorruptible, sorry, the corruptible will be clothed with the incorruptible and to ask me for any more details of what it will be like I can't give it to you. It is just glory upon glory upon glory and that is the ultimate purpose, the end of history that God is working towards. Towards that end we then have number 5, which is his providence. The Father has elected who will be saved. He will predestined where will be saved to. He predestined what we would be sa- how we would be saved through Jesus Christ. He is uh, predestining a-, a purpose for all of history, where everything is heading, and in the meantime, between creation and that teleological point, between the beginning and the end point, we then have his providence, which is another fancy word for his meticulous control over every atom, cell, star, speck of dust, everything in the universe is under his intricate control. Don't believe those who say he's in charge, but he's not in control. He's in meticulous control. A bird doesn't drop out of the sky without God's intentional exact will. Look with me again at verse 5, where we read of the purpose of his will. Or in verse 9, the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Or in verse 11, where we read that he works all things according to the purpose... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, He is he who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is God's all-encompassing, exhaustive control on everything in history. Bringing everything towards the telos, towards through Jesus' salvation, through the church age, into glory... Every single second that goes past, every single rotation of the earth, every single day that passes, Jonathan Edwards says, is like an inch on the turn of a carriage going towards its final home. Every turn of those wheels is just one more, infinitely divided into however small portions you want to, every single turn of that wheel is just a part of the greater and more glorious purpose of taking the carriage home. The end point is set and at every everything that happens in history is simply God moving the carriage closer towards our end point. The unity and the unification of all things in Jesus Christ. What a good piece of news that is for sinners like us to know that he is in control. God's Insecurity and anxiety does not go up and down with yours each morning. Your salvation does not rise and fall, shake and flutter like your heart does and your gut does and your mind does and your anxieties do day by day. You may fear, you may shake, but it is a, it is a gloriously good thing that the pilot comes and says to you, this thing, it's not running on your hopes and dreams. This thing is running on a thing called jet fuel. This thing has physics going at play that actually your anxiety doesn't budget one bit. So it is with God's salvation for us. The Trinity is working together in their infinite and glorious purposes and are not at one moment thrown off because of your anxieties. And so we can rest easy in the glorious, unchangeable, permanent purposes of God, the purpose of his will, which he absolutely will bring to pass. And our last point as we consider the Father is that everything that he does, which is to say everything ever, is to his glory. It is for the sake or the purpose of glorifying himself. Look at verse 6. That our adoption through Jesus, our redemption through Jesus is to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14. The Spirit is our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Three times, God, through the Apostle Paul, has no problem with reiterating that the purpose that anything and everything is happening, the way that God has planned, is so that He, the Father, gets the glory He deserves and the maximal glory that He could possibly get. That's the purpose of the world to give God the glory that he desires and deserves. Now, we need to make a distinction between ascribed glory and intrinsic glory. By intrinsic glory, we mean the, 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 the fact of the matter, the, the reality of God's nature, his person, his attributes, his perfections, his majesty is such that him receiving praises never adds to or lessens his intrinsic glory One bit. Don't believe the preachers. Throw away the mindset that you might have had that God was sitting uh, lonesome before he made the world and he created the world so he could save a bunch of us and then have us all in heaven later so that he could make us all sing and dance like monkeys and then finally he'll say, oh yes, that's it, I've finally got my glory. I've finally filled up my glory tank. Mom, aren't you happy with me? Aren't you proud of me? Look, Mom, I've got all my glory. Not the picture, of the eternal triune God. God is intrinsically, infinitely, eternally glorious. Nothing will ever, could ever change that. What we are called to give is not intrinsic, essential, ontological glory, but ascribed glory. That is that God has made us so that in the fullness of time, starting now, starting now, But in the fullness of time, in the unification of all things, at the wrapping up of history, when all his people are given eternal bodies, brought into the presence of his son, we will look to God and not give flattery. He's not like the weird kid at school who took you home and showed you his doll collection and wouldn't let you leave until you agree that it's the best doll collection you've ever seen. Right? Doors are locked. Right? UV light is on. Getting all creepy, breathing down your neck. Tell me how great I am. It's not as if God's going to have us in heaven and go, well, now you're here. You've got to tell me. You've got to tell me I'm glory. And we all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love, love the hair, real white. Love the robe. The heaven you've done, what you've done to this place is marvelous. And we have to think up things to try and give him glory for. It's not flattery. It's simply us finally thinking and responding properly. What should mark us now according to verse 3, blessing him. And what will mark us in the future is not that we have to think very long whatsoever to think about what we can praise him for. We are simply unblemished, pure, cleaned mirrors that can behold the glory of God and simply reflect it back to him. That's called praise. When finally, when we're not fogged up by our sin and we're not, we're, not, we're not looking through a, through a dark glass because of, our, because of our fallenness, but we can finally look face to face into the glory of God and the only thing that comes out of our mouth day after day after day is sheer praise. You're not going to be forced to praise in heaven. You won't be able to help it. We will be glorifying him. And this is the great act of God's love. That what he chose to do before the beginning of time, arm not bent behind his back, in total and perfect freedom, he chose to create a world that he would let fall, that he would then send his son into, that he would then redeem a large portion out of to take them to himself, that they might be able to look back on history and say, we were sinners and he was gracious. We were enemies and he was merciful. We were in need and he was the saviour. We were the the runners and he was the initiator. We were the sinners condemned and he was the one who blessed and justified us. And now in his presence, we will have eternity and by gosh, we'll need eternity to give him the glory and the praise that he is due. That is the point that we are looking forward to, beholding and reflecting the glory of God in praise and worship through his son. If you read all that, and you amen in that, and then you remember where Paul's writing this from, you sort of get a bit of perspective. Because he's writing this tied up to a Roman guard in the Roman uh, uh, capital city under house arrest, not allowed to leave, under the persecution and the, uh, the the tight control and watch of the great superpower that by no means agrees with anything he just said. He's In modern nomenclature, this guy's full of it. There's a story. I've mentioned both of these before, but I'll mention them again. There's this guy, uh, John Knox. You've got to read up on him if you haven't. Uh, one of the reformers that brought the Reformation to the Presbyterian Kirk of Scotland, a, a glorious hero. And he, he, he was at one point, because of his reforming work in a castle that was then attacked by Catholics, he was ripped out of his pulpit and put into the galleys on French ships. How many pastors today would survive a day in Scotland, first of all, let alone in a French galley ship. And there he is, he's tied up in the galley of these rowboats, and he is day after day for two years in the blistering cold, being whipped, beaten, spat upon, and mistreated for being a reformed Christian. And there's this one, story, just imagine him being completely hopeless, this one day when the the, the Catholic officers were bringing around a little picture, a little idol of Mary to be blessed and to kissed and to be prayed to. And somehow, I don't know, he's tied up, but somehow he gets the, the courage, first of all, and the, the liberty of his arms to be able to grab the thing, flop it overboard, and say, she'll float, she's light enough, let, her, uh, let us pray to God for her. And there she is floating away. the the one little idol that these dear Catholics had on the ship, but I don't know what he was thinking. He had nowhere to go. He couldn't fight back. His, his imprisonment got so much worse because of it. What a guy. There's this other guy, Adoniram Judson. You might have heard of him before. Adoniram Judson was the 1800s, around the, the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s mark. He went to Burma, now called Myanmar. And he went there with the gospel where, where there was no living gospel witness. And today there is, there is hundreds of thousands of Christians there because of his work. But, but he was there back then and he was in the midst of his work, in the midst of his Bible translation, in the midst of his church planting, in the midst of his mission work, a civil war broke out, Sorry, rather a war broke out between the English and Burma. And he was taken as a suspected spy, a prisoner of war, put through this. It's basically a death camp. He was a prisoner of war. And there's this one point, his heels are racked up uh, above his head. He's dragged, he's uh, his, his hanging down. His head's in all kind of fecal matter, urine, maggots, vomit, whatever food they threw at them. That's what he's, his head is sinking in. And, and over here is... Feet up in the air, not in a relaxing way. His missionary pal and his missionary pal, so the story goes, says to him, "Well, Judson, what do you think? What are the what are the prospects of the mission of the of the church in Burma now?" And he turns. I believe it was Mr. Rice, and he says, "Mr. Rice, the future is as bright, is, is as, bright as the promises of God." Take both of those guys, John Knox, Adoniram Judson. Where'd they get their guts from? they got the guts from Prisoner Paul writing about eternity past, the glories of what is happening according to God's perfect will and the glories that are yet to be unfolded. And he's doing it from a manky little room in house arrest. Do you, do you let your situation, your work, your finances, your family, your difficulties, your sin, do you let those things cloud the glory that Paul has just, has just shone forth out of Ephesians 1? could you be in a in a prison can you be in the depths of of all of the things going on around you in life and still be able to say bless blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in christ can you amen that that's what we need to be Friends, do you think of the sovereignty of God, the choosing of God, the power and omnipotence of God in conclusion? And do you, do you cringe at that? Do you despise that? Then you need to repent and come under the full weight of Ephesians 1 so that you can give God the proper glory. Do you, do you see all of your life under the, under the great spotlight of this reality that God is saving, God is doing, God is taking us somewhere, and God is going to get you home? Lastly, for those who have heard much of this, but you are still outside of Christ. In other words, let me read again. What this passage would sound like for those who do not have faith in Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has not blessed you in Christ with any spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are not holy and blameless before him. He has not, so far as we know, We do not know whether he has predestined you for adoption as sons, but you remain enemies away from him, outside of Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He has not blessed you in the beloved. In him you have no redemption through his blood, no forgiveness of your trespasses. You have none of the riches of his grace. They have not been lavished upon you in any wisdom and insight. You have not been made known to the glory of his mysterious Will You have, verse 11, not obtained an inheritance. You have not received uh, the love of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. You have not yet had hope in Christ. You are not existing to the praise of his glory. In fact, there's nothing you despise worse. In him, you uh, you have not heard the word of truth. You have despised the gospel of salvation. You have not yet believed in him. You are not sealed with any promised Holy Spirit. He is no guarantee for you. Rather, he is a guarantee that you have no inheritance until you acquire the full possession of your condemnation to the praise of his glory. This, This good news does not apply to you if you're outside of Jesus Christ. None of the blessings, none of the blessings of God are on offer to you outside of Jesus Christ. Flee, run, sprint to the mountain of God this where salvation is offered, the cross of Jesus, where he died for you. Believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, it is impossible for us to wrap our heads around the glory of the gospel that we read in these passages. It is beyond us to understand the fullness of your nature in the Trinity, but God, for what grace you have given to us to understand, what goodness you have condescended to give your spirit so that we can understand the mystery of your will in the gospel. We thank you. We thank you. Would you establish it and settle it in our hearts so that we can live in light of it And for those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you give to them salvation today? Would your purposes be yes and amen for them in Christ? Would you seal them in his love and in his redemption? And everybody who loved the Lord Jesus Christ said amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.